0: I love the weather. It's been great. It's been amazing, actually. Uh, I would love for it to last forever, but then things won't be green next spring. Um, I went with some buddies on a motorcycle ride yesterday up over Bald Peak and down to Newburg to have some coffee. Wonderful ride, wonderful road, wonderful guys. And yet the only problem was, you know, on my bike, I lament the fact it only has one gauge And it's a speedometer, thankfully. That's a good gauge. Uh, But I wish I had a tack uh, because as I'm kind of running through the gears, you know, I can try to hear it. And I'd love to know where the power band is. And I actually wish it had a gas gauge. That would be helpful. haven't run out yet. That'll be a fun day. Um, You know, but I like vehicles with gauges. I like old cars because they have gauges. You know, you actually see things like, you know, how much your battery is charging on an amp meter or your tack or your, your water Not just, you know, the temperature, but as you go through all of the transmission, temperature, fluid, all those things. I like that. Because as a car guy, I can see and then I can monitor the health of my car. Today, you have like an idiot light, right? And it's like that's well-named because if you haven't taken care of your car and the red light goes on, you, yeah, you're done. Okay. I want to know how it's going before it gets there, right? I think that's the value of a gauge It's being able to read the gauge so you can know what the condition is so that you can attune to it or maybe you can make some adjustments, I know in, in life we have a lot of gauges. Many years ago, at sunrise, over a dozen years ago, I sat down with our staff and I said, "You know, if we were to ever make some gauges for our church, what would that look like?" And so we sat down and we said, "Well, what would we do?" I mean, we I mean, we can count. And although that's not everything, we can see if the numbers are down or middle or up or whatever, you know, where the arrows going. And so we started gauges. We still use this to this day, although the spreadsheet has gotten so large and multi-campuses and people and things like that, you know, attendance and baptisms, salvations, making disciples, how many people are in classes, you know, how much was given here, how much was given there. Those are gauges. They're not everything. It doesn't tell the whole story, but it helps us monitor the health of our congregation, we do that in business, right? If, if you're a part of a larger company that's publicly traded, you know that everything hinges on the quarterly report, you know, because the quarterly report will determine whether stocks go up or stocks go down, the value of your company. And, and, you know, people put a lot into that and stock markets, you know, something people really look at. Uh, if you're in school, Uh, Or or maybe you're a parent, you know, there's one gauge called a report card. That's always fun. I remember as a kid not enjoying that uh, because it came in the mail or was sent home in a sealed package for mom, you know. And so there's the report card, there's the grades, there's the pluses, the minuses, however, depending on how old the kid is and what grade, you know, the, the statistics and everything and all the every internals change, but it's a, are you doing well, or are you not doing well? And then you have a gauge, like a parent-teacher conference, where you actually sit down face to face and you talk about your child and what's going on. Those are gauges, those are important. I think physically we have gauges, right? The one I just absolutely love and adore is called my scale. Um... <laughs> Okay, maybe not so much. Um, you know that that gauge is, is uh, frightening to me. it really is i don't like that gauge, but it sits there on the bathroom floor and um, it's electronic connected to my Fitbit app, and so it remembers <laughs> darn it, <laughs> I wish it forgot, but it doesn't and um, we use gauges like that my again, my Fitbit I have a you know health kind of app and little device that tracks things steps yesterday it was like. 15 and a half, 18,000 steps, I forgot, but I, all I have to do is go back and look at it. It records the number of floors, it, you know, that I go, stairs I go up. It records a lot of things. It records my heart rate when I'm running or, you know, doing things like that. It even records my sleep. I can measure and monitor my sleep, which I'm a little addicted to because I get up in the morning and I just open the app and, you know, and it tells me how my sleep was, seven hours and two minutes last night. And it tells me that I only had like 53 minutes in deep sleep, but three and a half hours in light sleep. Which which is fine, but I usually get about two hours of deep sleep, and I'm sitting there analyzing the times I was awake, and I'm like, okay, that's way too many points of information for me because I don't even know what to do with it, right? Um, so we have we have those physical gauges. If you're an athlete, you know about miles, or you know about you know the things that you do. Uh, we have spiritual gauges. Let's be honest. Uh, we have ways to track how we're doing spiritually. You know, yeah. Admittedly, some of it is very subjective. How we feeling? Uh, but are, are we reading the Bible? Are we praying? Are we fellowshipping with other followers of Christ? Are we serving? Are we giving? Those are all things that are listed in the New Testament as points of discipleship, right? And so we can kind of see how we're doing there. If we surround ourselves in community, then we can have other people help us monitor those gauges. But I think one of the gauges that we're really ill-equipped to monitor, even identify, is the emotional gauge, We know what spiritual maturity is about. We're church, right? We know what physical maturity is about, right? We're a world. We're a culture. But do we know what emotional maturity is all about? A number of years ago, about 12, 15 years ago, Pastor Kevin took us through this book, Emotional Healthy Church. Really great book. I've read it a number of times. Uh, The author is a pastor, Pete Scazzaro, on the East Coast in New York City, and then he's had the emotional spiritual leader and all kinds of things. But In this book, he basically says that just like in the physical realm, we have stages of growth. Just like in the spiritual realm, we have stages of growth. In the emotional realm, we have stages of growth. I mean, look at this. We talk about this a lot. We talk about as a a physical child. You know, at Sunrise, we care about our physical children, our, our babies. We have a whole nursery for them. We have a ministry for them. I was back there beforehand. All these ladies are sitting there on the floor, and, you know, and they're hanging out there with the, with the babies, the toddlers. And they love it, and they're, you know, singing songs of Jesus and holding them and loving on them even when they're crying and things like that. We know that we're to care for our infants, but then they can't remain infants forever. They grow up. And then we have a children's ministry. Pastor Jack is back there and the teachers and the leaders, and they're serving in the ministries, their classes and You know, divided and things like that. And so they're about making, you know, young disciples. And we know about adolescence. We have Taylor, who's our youth pastor, and he focuses on, you know, the junior high, the middle school, the high school. And as we take a look through that, we see that there are stages of growth even within that. And so we focus on that. And as adults or parents, we get that. We know what it's like to grow up physically and spiritually, right? Because when you're born again, as Jesus says in the book of John, chapter 3, the gospel, we're born a second time spiritually. We come into the world as infants, as babies, and so... Paul says in one of his letters that we're desire the milk of the word, right? We're desire that. Peter mentions that, that we're desire milk, okay? But then we got to grow up a little bit, and we got to get to the point where we're starting to eat solid food, and we're children, we're learning to feed ourselves spiritually, and then we're adolescents, we're serving, and we're giving, and we're living, but there's this tension in there, and then we become a spiritual adult or a parent where we're now spiritually giving birth to other people. We're making disciples who make disciples, I want to read for you what uh, Pastor Escazero talks about in his book as a series of definitions about emotional maturity levels, all right? Now, I'm going to read this, and you'll find yourself in not just one spot, but several spots. I know that. This is not uh, read to condemn anybody. Uh, it's not read to please be used as a tool to beat anybody else up. It's to be read as just a self-monitoring way to ask the question, how am I doing emotionally? So let me read this. Emotional infants. Like a physical infant, I look for other people to take care of me more than I look to take care of them. I often have difficulty in describing and experiencing my feelings in a healthy way, and rarely do I enter into the emotional world of others. I'm constantly driven by a need for instant gratification, often using others as objects to meet my needs, and I'm very unaware of how my behavior is affecting or hurting them. People sometimes perceive me as inconsiderate, insensitive, and self centered. Emotional children. Like a physical child, when life is going my way and I'm receiving all the things I want and need, I'm content and seem emotionally well-adjusted. However, as soon as disappointment, stress, tragedy, or anger enters the picture, I quickly unravel inside. I interpret disagreements as a personal offense, and I'm easily hurt by others. When I don't get my way, I complain, I throw an emotional tantrum, I withdraw, I manipulate, drag my feet, become sarcastic, or take revenge. I have difficulty calmly discussing with others what I want and expect them to live in a mature way. Emotional adolescence. Like a physical adolescent, I know the right way I should behave in order to fit in with a mature adult society, but I can quickly feel threatened and alarmed when I'm offered constructive criticism and become defensive. I subconsciously keep records of the love I give out so I can ask for something in return at a later time. When I'm in conflict, I might admit some fault in the matter, but I will insist on demonstrating the guilt of the other party, proving why they are more to blame. Because of my commitment to self-survival, I have trouble really listening to another person's pain, disappointments, or needs without becoming preoccupied with myself and emotional adults. I can respect and love others without having to change them or becoming critical or judgmental. I don't expect anyone to be perfect in meeting my relational needs, whether it be my spouse, my parents, my friends, my boss, or my pastor. I love and appreciate people for who they are as whole individuals, the good and the bad, not for what they can give me or how they behave. I take responsibility for my own thoughts, feelings, goals, and actions. When under stress, I don't fall into a victim mentality or a blame game. I can state my own beliefs and values to those who disagree with me without becoming adversarial." I'm able to accurately self-assess my limits, strengths, and weaknesses and freely discuss with them, uh, discuss them with others. Deeply in tune with my own emotional needs and feelings, I can move into the emotional worlds of others, meeting them at the place of their feelings, needs, and concerns. I am deeply convinced that I am absolutely loved by Christ and have nothing to prove. Now, I'm pretty sure you heard something in there that reflected you or the person you're sitting next to, right? I know that's how it is, right? Wow, man, I really wish so-and-so would have been here for this sermon. They sure could have used it. <clears throat> they're here, and they're glad you're here, okay? Now, I have, <clears throat> have this as a little handout, and you can grab it at the Connect area, and it's just a few pages of questions. It's very subjective. It's about your own interpretation, data points on that as you answer questions. And, but I'd encourage you to take it. I'd, I'd encourage you to grab it. it. It's a great book. It's a challenging book, because one of the things Scazzaro talks about in the book is that... As churches, as Christians, we're really good at talking about physical maturity and the levels of maturity. And we're absolutely good at talking about spiritual maturity and the levels. But by and large, churches are clueless about emotional maturity. Church leaders are clueless about emotional maturity. And in fact, if you don't have strong emotional maturity, you may be physically mature. You may even be, by some people's definition, spiritually mature. But you're not fully mature if you're lacking emotionally. And I I can tell you, I mean, case in point, as a pastor of over 30 years, I will tell you that having been in different places and situations, been a follower of Jesus for nearly 40 years, I can tell you that churches are filled with emotionally immature leaders. People that maybe stand up on a platform, maybe that lead a ministry or a small group, and in many ways exemplify what we would think is maturity, but emotionally they're a basket case emotionally there's this deep hurt that's gone on and they haven't addressed it because we don't know how to address it. And so in his ministry, in his church, and in the books, he writes a lot about this and he talks about this. And if you've never experienced this, man, God bless America. Um, But most of us have really experienced this. And if you haven't experienced it, go find a small church that has a monthly business meeting. Just hang out. I kid you not the stuff Christians argue over. In the name of Jesus. Seriously, one ply, two ply, toilet paper, plastic, or stainless steel. The color of the carpet, the kind of chairs or pews, the translation of the Bible, the style of music, the location of the piano, where the piano went, you know? It's amazing how immature we are as followers of Jesus. While physically and spiritually, at least supposedly, mature. And when I think about emotional maturity, I think about emotional maturity as the ability to handle the pressures of life and be in tune with yourself and aware, as the gauges on the dashboard of your life indicate, and being able to say, hey, it's time to pull in for a pit stop. It's time to stop. It's time to say no. It's time to have some boundaries. It's time to have some strengths, right? Right? I mean, if, if you were to come up to me and, and say, hey, hey, Pastor James, can I borrow 20 bucks? I'd look at you and say, I am a married man. I don't have any money. Um, <laughs> but but I, don't, I don't have any money. You know, I don't have any cash. And, and, um, and maybe, maybe I did have 10 bucks, let's say. And um, can I have 20 bucks? And I, I, don't, I don't have it. I only have 10. No, but I mean, seriously, it, it, can, you, can you give me 20 bucks? I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have 20 bucks. Y- yeah, but you're my pastor. Why don't you give me 20 bucks? Immediately you could see where something's wrong here, right? But we think nothing of doing that with a different currency, the currency of time. I, I, I just need a few minutes of your time. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be over here. Yeah but, yeah, but, yeah, but I need some of your time. How many times have we looked to somebody else to fill an emotional need in us When they're already busy filling emotional needs in others. And we get hurt and offended because they weren't there for us. Even though maybe they're there for somebody else. Or maybe they're actually on a pit stop. You know, if if you drive 18-wheeler, if you drive a truck, you know that every once in a while you have to stop, fuel up, eat a good breakfast, get a shower, sleep, get back in that truck and keep going. Yeah, but you know, I really love my company. I'm going to keep driving. (laughs) No, that's not how it works. It's against the law, right? Because we know there's danger but we do this emotionally. We pour out, we pour out, we pour out. We give and we give and we give. And we love when people ask us for more and we feel like we're giving even more. That's not how Jesus did it, my friends. Now, sure, Jesus was emotionally mature. We, we could see that. Uh, yesterday, we had a men's breakfast. And in men's breakfast, we were looking at the beginning of this book called the Measure of Man, uh, Pastor Gene Getz. And he wrote it in the early 70s. It's still phenomenal. And so we had this, and we're gonna look through this in the months to come. Uh, every month, taking a character quality Uh, of a man of God and looking at it and asking how we're doing and how can we take steps in that. And yet he reminded us, what's so great, he says, you know, we talk about Jesus being the God-man, and that's true, he was fully God, fully man, and that's a hard thing to understand, to put together. But all God, all man. But before he was the God-man, he was the God-baby. It's like, yeah, that's Christmas, right? We Think about that, it's coming up, the God-baby, that's cool. But he was also the God-child. He was a child, and he grew up. And when he was twelve, in Luke two fifty two, it says that uh, he, you know, had this moment, and he went home to be with his parents, and he submitted himself to them, and he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So he grew intellectually and physically and relationally and spiritually. That's how Jesus grew, and so he was the God adolescent. He was the God teenager, you know, and then finally he was the God adult, the God man, and Jesus knew what it was like to have emotional maturity. In fact, when I, when I think about the life of Jesus and I think about all the pressures that he went through, I mean, he knew stress, right? Uh, people pulled at him everywhere he went. The crowds demanded food. The crowds demanded sermons. Individuals begged for healing. There was no end to what he could have been doing. Uh, disciples wanted leadership. Friends wanted time with him. Religious leaders wanted answers. Who are you and where do you get your authority? And he had the whole world to save, right? And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John only really record about three, three and a half years of this. Yet Jesus didn't rush. You read the stories, he sat and he talked with a woman at a well. He spent the afternoon, even though he was tired, even though he was hungry, he spent time with her. He reached out his hand. When no one else would touch a leper, he reached out and touched him and healed him. He felt the touch of a woman who was bleeding as he was walking through the crowd, and he stopped for her and she was healed. His hometown, his, his family, his church, synagogue as it was, Uh, they tried to push him off a cliff because they didn't like his sermon, right? And yet he walked right through that in the midst, unhurried and unrushed. Lazarus was sick and dying. Jesus knew it, and he waited, and he delayed. Jesus walked away from towns when there were more people to heal. This one, this always gets me. In this one passage in John 5, Jesus walks into a place where there was desire for healing, This pools in Jerusalem, and he had to walk over sick people to get to one guy and heal that guy and walk over people to get back. There were a whole lot of people that needed healing that day, but he went for one man. Jesus knew the gift of limitations and boundaries. I don't know about you, but I I, I struggle with that sometimes. Jesus exemplified what we in leadership call a non-anxious presence. He could be in the middle of a storm, and he's okay. He's not going to freak out. He doesn't let his circumstances dictate and direct who he is internally or externally. I don't know about you, but do you feel like all you're rushing and rushing around is not accomplishing everything? Do you feel like no matter how much is on the list, even if you get something off the list, the list now has two more items? I don't know about you, but do you feel like the needs of the people around you as you serve are greater than what you could ever accomplish, even if you stayed up 24 hours a day? Raise your hand if you can identify what I'm talking about, right? Because we're servants, And we're busy doing good to people, and we're leading people in a growing relationship, and we're serving the least, the last, and the lost, and that is not something you can always put on a calendar, right? But my question would be is, do you know how to say no? Do you know how to be centered in Jesus Christ? Do you know how to walk in the midst of all of it with a non-anxious presence, or are you filled with anxiety as the situations spin up and out of control? Now, I want to take us to a passage of scripture I love it it 's the really another one of those weird passages, bizarre passages. I like the gospels because they 're they 're true, and every once in a while it 's like I don't think I'd have put that one in there, you know? (laughs) Um, But this is a good one. I'm glad it's in there. Mark chapter 4, and starting in verse 35 to the end of the chapter, verse 41. Now, we looked at 35 last week, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. While you're turning there, I'll just remind you, last week we saw this verse that said, Jesus went to the other side of the lake. And we talked about that in chapter 5, the first 20 verses, where Jesus goes to heal this demon-possessed man, a Gentile, uh, hung out in the caves, insane, Amazing story of Jesus going uh, to the other place that nobody would go, pushing the religious boundaries, as it were, to the safe places to go to someone who is hurting and broken and loving them. But just before that, this is how the story reads. It says, as evening came. Now, evening is this. The Bible tells us in Mark 1, 2, 3, and 4 is that Jesus was healing people, he was serving people, he was loving people, he was ministering p- to people, he was doing a lot. And Mark uh, presses it all in, and, and his favorite word is immediately. And Jesus is, then immediately, then immediately, then immediately. Well, Jesus is exhausted at this point, okay? So if you've ever been exhausted, in fact, if you're exhausted right now, this is your story. All right. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake, So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. I I, I like that little parenthetical thought there. Other boats were still trying to keep up with Jesus. As a pastor, you know this if you do any ministry, it's like that. No matter how many times you minister, other boats will follow, right? Because there's always more people. There's always more that you could do, right? And we feel guilty if we don't do all, but you can't do all. I mean, right now we have a team in Beaumont, Texas right now. And, and we've had several teams throughout the year because of the hurricane. But there have been more hurricanes, right? And, and there are a lot of people that aren't being served. I got a picture this morning. I was really jealous they were having breakfast at the Waffle House. Come on, don't send me that picture. Send me if you doing something. Because now I'm jealous. Because where else can you have breakfast and a fight break out at the same time but at the Waffle House, right? <laughs> it's an awesome place, okay, if you watch, you know. And, and you know, they're serving, right? And they're helping people. But there are so many people not being helped. Who do you decide which one to help? And how do you help that person and walk away and go, okay. Because there will be other boats that follow. Well, well, can you help me? Can, can you help me too? We could do that to the detriment of our soul, right? And so other boats followed, but soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Now, here's a picture of the late 1800s. And so, this is uh, a picture on the Sea of Galilee of Arab fishermen long before Israel became a nation again in 48, so, you know, 70-plus years prior to that. And this is uh, one of those ancient uh, photos that then becomes painted on. And this is is what we're talking about right here, a boat. Imagine uh, Jesus with his disciples in a boat. Now, if you go to Israel today, you can go to a kibbutz called Genesar up in the northwestern uh, part of the lake, and you could see where they actually excavated a boat just like this that had been buried in the mud and the mire for 2,000 years. 1986, I think it was, 87, they found it, they pulled it out, and they dated to the time of Christ. They know that it was sunk during the war in 70, 72, when the, the Romans came through to you know, to push out the Jews. And so this is an ancient boat, and it looks like this. It's this big. Now imagine, though, that's still not that huge for 12 guys and Jesus to be asleep in a boat. So Jesus has got to be exhausted. Ministry has pressed in so hard he has wiped out, all right? Jesus knows what it's like to be exhausted by serving people. Okay, look at the story, though. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? I love that. that's a great question god don't you care god don't you care about my situation let's finish it we'll come back to this That's what it says when jesus woke up he rebuked the wind and said to the waves silence be still suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm then he asked them why are you afraid do you still have no faith and that must have been tough because who'd have faith in the middle of a storm like that uh, you know, just looking at the Sea of Galilee, it's about 600 feet below sea level, and because of the cliffs and the east and the west and the way the wind rushes through the Transjordan Valley, you get these intense gale-force winds just at the drop of a hat almost, and the sky turns dark, and the wind blows, and the rain comes down, and it's terrifying. It's like a hurricane right there in the lake. Of course they're going to be afraid. Does Jesus have any right to ask, why are you afraid? Well, He does. The disciples were absolutely terrified. Well, they were, they were terrified of the storm. another they're terrified of the guy in the boat with them. Who is this man, they ask each other, even the wind and waves obey him. Now this is early on in the story, and so they don't quite know who Jesus is yet. He's done some pretty amazing things. But this is beyond amazing that could even speak to the wind and the waves. And they're to be calm Imagine the drama of it all. I mean, already these guys have anxiety because he's told them they're going to go to the other side of the lake and so there's apprehension. Um, they're, they're going across a lake. The fishermen, Jewish people, Hebrews at the time, they were not seafaring people, all right, and so they would hang out in the perimeter and fish, but they wouldn't cross over because of the danger. So already filled with apprehension and anxiety. And then the storm comes up and they're filled with terror and fear. In the middle of all of it, Jesus is asleep. Jesus is asleep in the boat. I don't know if you ever feel like Jesus is asleep in your boat. I felt like that before. Now, I, I love I love what they ask Jesus. Don't you care, teacher? Don't you care? Uh, the word care is often translate often translated worry or anxious. In other words, Jesus, why aren't you freaked out? I like that. Jesus, why aren't you panicked? We're panicked. Why don't you join our panic party? Right. Let's join a little freak-out fest here, Jesus, because we're spinning out of control. Why aren't you spinning out of control? Now, I, I know, I know, I know it's easy to say, yeah, but Jesus just played the God card. And I don't like it when he plays the God card, except on the cross. But on the God card, it's like, yeah, but I can't do that. Jesus is in a crowd, and the Pharisees, and then he knows what they're thinking, and he asks them the question. I go, I can't do that, because I don't know what they're thinking, right? But, but stop and think about this. Even apart from the God card that he could speak and and calm and he's exhausted and so he's asleep in the boat and when he wakes up he does not join the party a panic but he just speaks and it's calm and i think there's a huge lesson for you and for me we can when the emotions rise up when the turmoil of life begins to spin when we walk into an environment into a family, into some friends when there's chaos, when the tornado is whipping around, we can jump in the middle of that and then we will do no good, or we can calmly bring a presence into that place that would bring a little bit of clarity, a little bit of faith into the midst of all of it. I don't know if you ever feel this way. God, where are you and why aren't you showing up? I, I have. Look again at the stories of Jesus. He's never rushed or in a hurry. Again, he sits down at night to talk to a religious leader to answer his questions about God, about faith. He sits there calmly even though he's tired and hungry and spends time with a woman, an irreligious woman about her life and talks about God and as a result, her whole village comes to faith. He walks through town and heals the blame and the lime and the dying. And even lepers approach him without fear. And Jesus was slow and he was an intentional person in his pace and everywhere he went, he exemplified a non-anxious presence. And I'll tell you this, my friends, as a pastor, at Sunrise and and knowing a lot of churches and being a part of churches throughout my life as a follower of Christ, I can tell you this, most ministries don't get this. Most pastors don't get this. Most church leaders don't get this. We let the ministry and the pace of ministry determine our pace, and we wear ourselves out, and we burn out. You know, it breaks my heart to hear stories of pastors just giving up. It breaks my heart. It just kills me to hear stories of pastors that have given up to the point of, giving up their lives. That's happened recently where they can't take it anymore. But I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about you. As we do ministry, as we love people, as we lead a small group, as we shepherd men and women, as we walk alongside young people or children, when we see the panic and the moment that they're in, if we let that pace determine our pace, we are not gonna be a help to them. Our presence will either ratchet up the tension or bring a calming influence to every room we enter into. Even though Jesus was terribly busy, we would say, he walked with peace. You and I live in a world surrounded by unceasing needs and incredible anxiety. Whether it's low level or whether it's high level, there's anxiety all around. You don't have to go to Portland to experience this, right? just all around you. I spent some time yesterday at men's breakfast with one of my friends. He's a retired Portland cop. And I I thought, oh, I want to ask this question. And so I said, Dean, tell me a little bit about what it was like. I mean, you you were on the force for like 30 years and it's Portland and and what what was that like and and how did you deal with this? And he said, honestly, for the first 10 years or so, I didn't deal well because I I just was trained to be confrontive and to go in and just master the situation and control it. And then it slowly turned around and I became an officer of the peace. And and he told a couple examples of how he walked in peace and that totally changed the room and the environment he walked into. And what would that look like for you and for me? Because we live in a world all around us that's overwhelming. And we will be overwhelmed if we don't have the peace of Christ. I love the Apostle Paul and he writes to the church at Philippi. He says these words in verses six and seven. He says, don't be anxious Some translations say, don't worry. It's the same thing. You know, don't freak out, in other words, right? Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul is saying here, is that you have a choice in any moment, in any situation, And the choice is yours. It really is yours. You're in control of that choice. It's not about your circumstances. It's not about other people. You have to become emotionally strong and mature and say, I alone decide how I'm going to respond in this situation, right? I'm going to decide how to respond to this, no matter what's going on. You know, when you think about the one choice people can't take away from you is the choice to make the choice of that moment and how you're going to respond to it. And you can either pray Or you can worry, but you can't do both. And if you decide to worry and become anxious, as a follower of God, you're living like a practical atheist. And you say with your words, but you don't live with your life you can be at peace in the midst of a storm and you're like yeah but Paul that's not fair you don't know my situation have you looked at his situation (laughs) he's in prison yeah but okay but he's chained up he's he's seated what yeah but did you read the book of Acts it's a good story it's got all kinds of stuff that would cause you panic we would never make it through that right and he says don't be anxious about anything don't worry about anything at all. There's no reason to worry. You have a heavenly father that loves you and cares for you and provides for you if you take him up on the offer. But pray, and when you pray with thanksgiving, you're praying in advance basically. You're thanking God in advance for what you don't have yet. He's gonna show up and you're gonna have a peace that doesn't make any sense. Passes all human understanding. I've experienced that in the worst of the worst parts of my life. Just a calm settles over me when I pray, and it's like, I don't know. People have asked me, How can you not be freaking out? I have no idea. I'm just praying, and I've got peace. I think the world needs to see that, my friends. Not more religion. But they need to see peace in the midst of incredible anxiety. If you don't have enough emotional maturity, ministry will become an emotional roller coaster ride. And I believe strongly that one of the signs of a mature faith is a decline in anxiety and an increase in prayer and the peace that comes along with that from God. One of my favorite stories uh, as an example of this is from the late 1800s. George Mueller, great missionary evangelist, lover of children. He was a guy that had many orphanages. At one time, he had 120,000 120, children he cared for in orphanages. That's a lot of kids, right? He never asked for money. He just prayed instead. Never put up posters, never took offerings. He just prayed, and God always provided. Here's a story of one of those days, and this is from his words. One morning, all the plates and cups and bowls at the table were empty. There was no food in the larder or the, the pantry and no money to buy food. The children were standing, waiting for their morning meal. And I said, children, you know we must be in time for school. And lifting my hands, I prayed, dear Father, we thank you for what we're about to eat. And immediately, there was a knock at the door. The local baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some, so I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and I brought it for you. Of course he did. (laughs) Of course he woke up at 2 a.m., all right? Because this guy prayed and offered Thanksgiving in advance and God showed up. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker and no sooner had he left than there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart was broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he'd have to give all the children his fresh cans of milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. Of course it broke down right in front, okay? Because <laughs> Mueller prayed, and he lived by prayer, and he lived by faith, and he lived by thanksgiving. Imagine, my friends, if we as followers of Jesus Christ lived in such an extraordinary peace the past all understanding in the midst of this crazy world we now live in. Completely polarized, completely full with anxiety and hatred and anger and just unbelievable chaos if we walked in peace. And people were to walk up to us and go, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you freaked out? Why aren't you panicked? And you were to say, you know, I'm in a boat right now. And even though God seems like he's asleep, I'd rather be in a boat with him while he's asleep than try to row myself on my own. I think we could make a huge difference in the world if we walked in peace. Uh, you've been at Sunrise about how many years? About 20. About 20 years. Your, your parents, John and Betty, showed up. I remember that years ago. And you ended up following. Uh, you are a public school teacher at what school?
1: I'm at Mooberry.
0: At Mooberry. Okay. And you've been teaching how many years?
1: This is number 30.
0: That's awesome. 30 years. That's cool. And you're still sane.
1: Well, I started when I was five.
0: You started when you were five. Yeah, I get that. And um, I'm going to make this, uh, you have no gray hair. You <clears throat> just don't see that. I just don't see it, yeah. 30 years of teaching elementary schools. Uh, what, what grades are you teaching right now?
1: So in the morning, I'm a third, fourth grade teacher, and then in the afternoon, I teach second grade math. Okay.
0: And Mooberry is that uh, really wealthy school. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, in in Hillsborough School District, maybe you know this, we have a lot of poverty, uh, anywhere from 48 to 52 percent of our uh, students are on free and reduced lunch and at your school it's 90 90 and so at some point they stop counting and just give everybody a free lunch it's so much exactly. easier less expensive actually to do that mm-hmm. and so what are some of the stresses that uh, you or school teachers experience
1: huh.
0: <laughs> other than the children <laughs> other than the children no
1: that is that's why we're there um I would say that um, our students come to us with a lot of trauma, and it affects their learning. And so as teachers um, in our district, we're becoming a trauma-informed school district where the teachers are being trained on how to handle kids and having a little bit more of an understanding of what they're coming from and what they need to help to be regulated or to be in the green zone, which means they're ready to learn.
0: And um, so that's your hope, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, and how many kids show up in the green zone?
1: Depends on the day. Um, but, yeah, it's tough. I have a tough year this year. I got a lot of kids that get into the yellow and the red zone. You
0: mean the year that just started?
1: Yes. Okay,
0: all right. So not last year that was over.
1: No, that was hard, too. But
0: that was hard, too. But this one's even harder. I've heard that from uh, principals, from teachers, the superintendent, that it's, it's just getting very difficult. Uh, Why? Why is it getting difficult? Because, you know, you're supposed to teach these children. What else is going on?
1: Well, I think just society in general is more traumatic for our kids, our poverty kids. Where's our next meal coming from? Is dad going to lose his job? Um, Electricity going to go out. On top of just our media and what they see when they go home, it's just they're coming with a lot of stress.
0: Yeah, they come in. These third, fourth graders, they walk in with stress. And so, what does it look like for you as a follower of Jesus Christ, a teacher, to lead with a non anxious presence and hopefully in those little windows of opportunity uh, to see the class calm down?
1: Well, um, it was about the third week of school and I realized um, I wasn't enjoying my job. And I was driving to school and really frustrated and not looking forward to the day. And it dawned on me I hadn't prayed. I hadn't prayed for my kids, I hadn't prayed for myself in that situation, so I've started to pray on my way to school, and uh, I would say I started noticing right away that um, I was reacting more the way God would want me to react. Doesn't mean I still don't get a little crazy. I remember one day I had one of my autistic kids going off, and I had another kid that was tapping his neighbor repeatedly, and then another, the phone was ringing, and I mean, it was... And I could tell I was starting to get into the yellow zone. And um, so I told the class, I need a break. And I walked to the back of the room. And they got very quiet, which was a good thing. (laughs) But I went to the back of the room, and I just kind of counted to 10 and took some deep breaths. And I came back and was able to be the calm because They need the calm, they need the adults in the room to be the ones that are calm, but and I they don't the fact have that at home. That
0: you are emotionally mature enough to send yourself to the corner, yes, okay, <laughs> and say
1: time out,
0: right? Right, okay, you got your own time out. That's good though, because we all need that. But you addressed it, they saw mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, without question, there are a lot of needs, but have you seen any moments of just pleasure where you know that you are making a difference?
1: Yeah, this is last week, I had a student that was so dysregulated he couldn't even go to music so he was in my room and I was trying to have a conversation with him and he was being very disrespectful and he was saying things like you don't like me you don't care about me nobody at the school likes me and I decided not to engage in that and just looked at my phone and was reading some emails and he just kept going and going and He'd start to kind of calm down, and I'd go, oh, you're going to be respectful. And then he'd go at it again, and so I'd stop and look at my phone again. And at one point he said, "Um, I'm opening the door. I'm going to go out the door. (laughs) And I just kind of just didn't engage. I stayed calm. And after a while, he came back, and I said, are you ready to talk respectfully? he goes, yes. And we had a great conversation, Um, and him just being real and more calm but the best part of that story is later in the afternoon when I came back in the room to get something he came up to me and gave me a hug a kid that hadn't hugged me all year and Mm. gave me a hug so I knew that you know if I can just be the calm one if I can be the one that has a a level of expectation and I hold to that and uh, that security that comes with that that's what they they need so
0: cool I want to say thank you on behalf of teachers everywhere and anybody that works in school. We are going to be signing cards this weekend. So uh, next door at Quatama, we have a new principal over there, and we've, throughout the years, loved on the school and helped them out in ways. And and so in Mooberry, where you go, uh, we're going to be writing cards after service. And so we've got about 48 cards. There's roughly 20-ish teachers at each school. And so we're going to give a coffee card in there in the midst. They can have a free latte on us, and that would be a highlight of the morning maybe. But I I tell you that most of our teachers don't get any love. I was at a district meeting with principals and pastors we meet once a year talking about the needs and how do we, you know, connect together, work on these things, and how does the faith community and the, the school community partner together on these things. Really exciting. It's been growing for years. And so we talked about that, and then I asked the question, the superintendent you know, it's a great guy, and I asked him, I said, you know, what about our teachers? How are our teachers doing, and how can we love on our teachers? And he looked at me, and several teachers in the room were like, yes, let's do that. So um, we love on kids. We do all kinds of stuff for backpacks and food and clothes, and we do all that. Uh, We help with schools, and we're going to work on teachers this year. And it would be my dream that we could love on every teacher in our district and just say thanks for doing the job that they do, because they don't get a lot of that.
1: Yeah, I was commenting in the last service Um, in my years of teaching I've had one parent contact me at the beginning of the year to say we're going to be praying for you this year Mm -hmm. only one Um, they didn't know I was a Christian Um, so That would be an encouragement I would have for you, if you're bold enough to let them know you're praying, but for sure be praying for your kids' teachers.
0: Yeah. Uh, For probably five or six years, I've been praying for, uh, he's now Mayor Calloway, uh, Steve, (laughs) he was principal, and he asked me to join his prayer team, and I was Thursday morning, and every Thursday morning I would pray for him, and he gave me a list, and he had a whole prayer team that he had set up as a principal, and, um, and then he moved into mayor, and so now it's Monday morning, so I pray for him at 5.30. Do that for your, your teachers, your, your administrators. Go get to know them. Find out what the needs are, because, you know, this is the community we live in. This is the culture we're part of, and we could stand there, and we could talk about all kinds of problems, or we could just step in and love, and we want to step in and love. So we're going to pray for Shireen and teachers uh, on your way out today please just say thanks. Uh, We only have 48 cards, so many people have to write. So if you have big letters, just do one word or so. Okay, so make them smaller. All right, so uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for Shireen. I thank you for her as an example of teaching and loving our children, our students, and our community. A lot of pressure, Lord. Give her wisdom, give her insight, give her focus, give her peace, and and a non-anxious presence in the middle, some days of chaos, to be able to see there's a greater purpose here. And in the midst of this, give her peace that passes all understanding so that students, so that parents, other teachers, administrators, see that in her and wonder what's going on and ask her for the hope that she has. We pray this in your name. Amen.